0: Hello, I'm Luke Dinarona, lecturer at the Sarah Parker Riemann Centre here at UCL, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Robbie Shilliam. Robbie is Professor of International Relations at John Hopkins University, and across his writing, he's made several critical interventions on questions surrounding race, colonialism and global order within political science, international relations, and far beyond. In addition to this, over the past few years, Robbie has co-curated, with community intellectuals and elders, a series of exhibitions in Ethiopia, Jamaica, and the UK, which have brought to light the histories and significance of the Rastafari movement for contemporary politics. And Robbie has published several important books, including German Thought and International Relations, The Rise and Fall of a Liberal Project, and then The Black Pacific, anti-colonial struggles and oceanic connections and in 2018 race and the undeserving poor from abolition to brexit which is an excellent book and this year his most recent book was decolonizing politics an introduction which was published with polity and we're going to focus our discussion around this book which is excellent i really recommend it i read it in preparation for the podcast and gained a lot from it and i'll definitely be recommending it to students at all levels It's, it's a brilliant book so Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Robbie. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, it's great to great to see you again, Luke.
0: Yeah. So let's start with this book, The Colonising Politics. Maybe you can tell us why you decided to write it.
1: Well, it was really to do with building some capacity. So there's a lot of people in universities who want to expose their students to these kind of arguments, but don't have the time and maybe don't have the, the intellectual background themselves to 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 be able to you know put a syllabus together or find some some readings and all that so so that was the main reason to to build some kind of capacity and and probably also because i mean everybody this is their own field right, <laughs> but political science is a very strange field in in this respect because on the one hand it's probably the least political of many many fields right so many of the ways in which it approaches politics. The study of politics is extremely removed and disembedded from from the politics itself and that 's to do with methodologies and methods and, and things to do with you know the, the popularity of surveys or experiments but in actual fact political science as a field was formally constituted as around a eugenics project and the eugenics project was to deal with the diversity of racialized inheritances which had come to comprise the U.S. polity by the the late 19th century, and to try and quarantine the debilitating effects of some heredities whilst also preserving the democratically aspirant heritages of Anglo-Saxonism. So it actually comes into play as a formal field. You know, it's a distinctly eugenicist project, right? And there's, of course, been plenty and plenty of people who've either been working inside or outside of political science, drawing attention to the to the racist nature of many of the the, the categories and the categorizations which go into politics. But a lot of them don't are not conceived of as being part of the um, traditional canon that you teach in political science. One very simple example is Cedric Robinson, who. You know, he's famous for his big book on black Marxism and, you know, popularizing this idea of racial capitalism. And Robinson was a you know trained as a political scientist, as a political theorist, and his first work was on very a very political science theme, which was around leadership. So that's kind of the reasons why I I did it, Luke. Plus they asked me, I wasn't gonna do it otherwise. So there's that that kind of randomness as well, but still.
0: (laughs) No, that's important. I mean, it does really show, I think, in the way you write the book that you are someone who values and thinks carefully about teaching. I mean, I remember actually when we met at Queen Mary, it was for, it might have been for your leaving leaving thing and, and I kind of cycled past you on campus and you you ended up being late for the thing because you'd stopped to speak to a student and you gave, gave the student your full attention. So yeah, it's clear that you've made effort in this book to, you know, kind of break it down, but I like it because it's not, it doesn't then oversimplify it just it's still going to be a challenge but there's no um, there's an attempt to walk through in lots of ways and to use you know repetition in certain ways and have a certain rhythm to it which I really like I mean one question that comes up for me is so you have this kind of methodology or this framework for your analysis which I think other people can take in any direction they want which is to kind of recontextualize various scholars various interventions into various dominant kind of strains of thought in political political science to reconceptualize them, partly through recontextualizing them, and then to reimagine. I wanted you to talk a little bit about how you came to that approach and, and partly what, I'm, what I was thinking about when I saw the book's title was, you know, decolonize is such a kind of vogue word now, particularly at risk of being co-opted by certain departments and universities, but you kind of offer a really concrete way of of decolonizing politics, but also of thinking methodologically and analytically about what it might mean to decolonize, beyond just kind of tweaking reading lists or whatever it might be. So I just want you to talk a little bit about your method for this.
1: Mm. Well, I mean, the method for this is actually attenuated uh, and it's attenuated for a good reason to do with some of the, the things you were talking about with regards to the, the popularity of decolonizing as a buzzword, right? So, you know, I'm in, I'm in a number of minds about that. But I think that if you take the idea of community, right, so neoliberals really took that word, which had had certain politics associated with it before, which, you know, not good or bad before the fact, but all of them struggling around some kind of idea of self-determination as as reparative, right, as as redistributional. And neoliberals took community and made of community an object which was supposed to be resilient, in other words, would just take all the rubbish that was thrown at it, (laughs) and that was very individualized. Right. And, and in fact, Margaret Thatcher, you know, her, fame, her famous phrase about there's no such thing as society. Well, you know, it, she, she then says there are fam- but families and individuals and also communities. Right. And communities don't need the state. What communities need is to self-help with each other. Right. It's, especially between patriarchal families. So all of that is to say that what do we do? Do we drop the word community then? And then what do we have left? Do we drop it because the neoliberals took it or do we actually say that that word is too important for us to let go and we will contest it, right? So it's the same with the decolonizing and the decolonizing, you know, has a very rich and varied history, which is wrapped up in all different kinds of politics from, you know, third worldism to indigenous struggles to all kinds of things. You know, in the book, in the comparative politics chapter, I I go to Walter Rodney and and I go to Dara Salaam um, in the 60s. And and that complex, that university complex in East Africa is probably the, the, the place where we get is the most proximate kind of route, if you like, of what we call decolonizing the university today. Because in that little complex of colleges, which part of the University of London, where you are in Uganda, Kenya and and Tanzania, you know, there were all these projects to think about what does a higher education system inherited from colonial rule, what does that do and how does that get re-modified and rethought in order to deal with the challenges of independence? And that was what, you know, Rodney was invested in, in Dar es Salaam, along with a lot of other people. And I'm going into that history because that history is quite a specific history. So Rodney was saying part of the purpose of the university is to make people turn their back on the rural areas and the majority of people who lived there and the people who, for whom independence would have the biggest stakes. And instead, it was all about funneling a small group of Tanzanians into the civil service, into these, you know, what you call petty bourgeois kind of jobs, management jobs, which would then reproduce a very small elite from colonial times, which who, whose position would be marked by their distance from the rural areas. And so Rodney's stuff was to think about how we teach, what we teach, and how that connects the university to the wider communities that it's supposed to serve. So that's the kind of thing which I, I'm interested in this book. And I think the, the recontextualizing, reconceptualizing and reimagining has to be part of. But I say it's attenuated simply because in the book, what I say is that not all politics have colonial roots, have colonial sources. That's, or if I do, maybe those sources are simply not that important for the issue at stake. And I hold to that. Otherwise, we've just got a smooth surface where everything is colonial. That means nothing is colonial. But what I do say is that the categories and the logics of the principal subfields of political science were developed directly in relation to colonial logics and racist logics. Right. And that is the thing that we need to be attentive to. Right. So it's not decolonizing politics per se, but it's saying if you are a student in university, if you're a scholar in university, you do you do political science. This is the first order issue that you need to be attentive to. And from looking at these logics, from kind of extracting them, thinking about them, critiquing them and then reimagining them, when you start to reimagine them, you're going to have to start reimagining the place of the university amongst the communities that it's supposed to serve locally, nationally and globally. And then that is where the broader stakes actually come into play. But it's not something that the book would want to kind of proselytize on.
0: No, that's really helpful. And I mean, I thought the que- the question of discipline is interesting for you because clearly you kind of exceed discipline. Your natural register isn't contained within a discipline, particularly, you know, Racing the Deserving Poor and, and, and your other books. And this book, again, has a great range, but it is also a book that's specifically about an intervention into a discipline. And yeah, I mean, I I don't know, maybe this is also about interdisciplinarity. Is a, We see it as a good thing. And then it also becomes a buzzword from the kind of managerial class in universities. And this this book, for me, said, well, maybe if we stick with the history of a discipline, we'll be able to say something coherent and useful. And I read it as not as a political scientist, but I still found it incredibly useful.
1: Yeah, that, I, I mean, that's really interesting, Luke. And in fact, it comes from a series from Polity Press, and they're doing this whole decolonizing sociology book. And there'll be other decolonizing various fields and all that. Of course, the risk of that is the risk which comes with, for example, if you think about how Europe as a whole has dealt with its colonial past, so what you get is you get nationalisation, right, which is similar to the discipline. So, for example, you know, the French will say, but we did colonialism differently because we were all about citizenship. And then the British will say, well, we did colonialism differently because we were all about abolition, right? And every single you know na- national narrative is all about the exemplarity of their colonial past has been different to the rest because it was nicer, right? So then what happens is everybody's just unusual and, and unique. And so you put all them narratives together, you've got no broader narrative about the colonial enterprise itself. You see what I'm saying? So there is a danger in doing this kind of, you know, let's do economics, then we'll do sociology, then we'll do politics. And of course, you know, if you look in, uh, and of course, the thing is that all these fields do actually speak to each other of course, the late 19th century, the master field, you know, which had replaced theology and had replaced the classics was eugenics. And eugenics was seen as the, the trunk of the tree from which all the other disciplines would almost become disciplines of one big thing. So, you know, that kind of broader colonial and racist knowledge enterprise can be diminished and can be obfuscated by this kind of you know, bit by bit. So we we need to keep that in mind, and hopefully, like you said, you know, it's in this book at least. You know, it hopefully would be clear that you can't delimit the question of politics and colonial logics to political science. That said, the disciplines are oftentimes the things which people retreat into in order not to deal with a problem, right? So you know, racism can be an interdisciplinary pursuit, right? And and it's quite safe there because. You know, most of the if you think about budgets and administrative structures in universities, those bodies which are most likely not to have their own budgetary lines are going to be interdisciplinary bodies. They're going to be research centers, not all the time, but it tends to be the case that they have less executive and budgetary power than the disciplines. And it's the disciplines which still run the thing. Still run the thing, right? So, you know, you could say, oh, well, yeah, I do political science. Oh, you want to look at racism, you want to look at colonialism? Go to the interdisciplinaries, right? Go see Luke. You know <laughs> right? you see what I mean? And of course, then, but what do students get taught? Students still, by and large, get taught the disciplines, right? And even if they're multidisciplinary, they're still disciplines. And again, what would happen is, You would learn about how the British were all about abolition. You learn how the Dutch were so nice and and, and, and paternalistic. You learn how the French were all about their, you know, fraternity, equality, blah, blah, blah. Right. You'd learn all that, but you'd never learn about colonialism. Mm. So there's a, there's a requirement for the disciplines to actually come to terms with their own complicities in this. And I see it not as an either or, but as an and. Mm. right. The disciplines have to do that. And disciplines can't do it by themselves, because as soon as they start to untangle these colonial logics, they'll start to have to deal with all the other all the other fields which are implicated, like I said, with eugenics or before that, with natural law, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, the other thing about the book, why I think it's so useful pedagogically is because it does kind of go through and take seriously and kind of trace the intellectual trajectories of some key figures. You know, you talk about Aristotle, you talk about Kant, you talk about eugenics, eugenicists and late Victorian racial thought and Malinowski, the kind of father of ethnography or anthropological fieldwork. And then you don't actually say it explicitly till the end I think that you got this method partly from a colleague, a former colleague at SOAS, but you talk about this method of putting authors in conversation, unlikely conversations between between various authors as a kind of method. And I really enjoyed that. You know, if you go from Kant to winter, mm. Fanon follows the eugenicists to think differently about behavior and mm. pathology and Aristotle and you end with Aristotle and Gloria and Zaldúa, And there's a lot of creativity in that. But I suppose my question is, just because I'm interested, is the reimagining. So that's the, the latter figures mm. I name each time, you know, the, the people who could give us a more expansive, more critical, better way of thinking about some some of the key questions mm. which are important in political science or in social and political thought. You have to make some choices, I guess, for a short book like this about, you know, who was going to go where. So I'm just interested in, in the choices. I imagine it was difficult for you from the kind of imag- the number of resources that you draw on in your work. So maybe a bit about those choices. And then I was particularly mm. up for you talking because you are, uh, you know, your title, at least, is Professor of IR, of International Relations. And in that chapter on international relations, you you talk about how that discipline might be, which is an amazing chapter, really helpful for thinking about the what I sometimes find as a non-IR person, the slightly strange preoccupations of, with its kinds of (laughs) questions about sovereignty and anarchy and all this stuff Mm -hmm. but you you say how this the discipline might be decolonized by taking seriously the indigenous movements in the pacific for a nuclear free and independent pacific and you trace that movement those movements in a really interesting way so i wondered if you could talk that example i'd like you to draw on and more broadly about you know how you Mm -hmm. found how you came to make the decisions you did about who to reimagine with
1: Mm. So in terms of pedagogy, teaching in classes, the person who I got that idea from was Manjit Ramghadran, just to, to say that. The people I chose were, okay. so I don't believe that some people live on Mars and some people live in Venus. I don't believe that. That's to say that there are certain fundamentals of human existence, which are, I think, fundamentals, but which are engaged with, practiced with. Thought about, experienced in a whole kaleidoscopic set of different ways, right? And that certain things which might take a cardinal point in one practice or way of thinking about something have quite different parts in other constellations of thinking about that. So, you know, if you're thinking about the idea of rights, universal rights, something along those lines, it's not a creation of the Enlightenment. That's just a story that Europeans tell. And it puts them under too much pressure and it's unfair. So they shouldn't even tell that story to themselves. What they say is, you know, unique about the, the, the European Enlightenment. It's, it's just not. Things to do with ideas of political belonging and uh, the kind of characteristics and behaviour of those who, who belong. You know, we, we call it political behaviour, but, you know, that, that's, nothing, that's nothing unique or special. The act of comparison. There's nothing unique about that. Nor is the worry about war and peace. Right? So the some of the key concerns of the subfields of political science are experienced, practice, theorized about in different ways, in different places. And then, of course, there's a whole infrastructure which connects all these practices and puts them into contention sometimes, puts them into articulation other times. I'm saying all that because when I think about Sylvia Winter, I think about her concern about what does it mean to be human on human terms? That to me is one of the fundamental lines of inquiry of many of the Enlightenment philosophers in Europe who came up with ideas about right, like for example, Manuel Kant, right? So Winter, you know, can be put into conversation with Kant, Talk about behavior and the political behavior and the racist ideas about how certain Anglo-Saxon heritages have breed literally breed a disposition towards orderly independence which is especially conducive to the democratic project well you know that's racist i mean it literally i don't mean that in a normative sense i mean in a descriptive and analytical sense and so i put that up against france fanon who in his psychiatric work in algeria is all about that is all about that and critiquing that but but this time with the french right so what i'm basically saying is is that i decided who we would reimagine with, not on a whim, but based on the requirements of the subfields, i.e. what what was some of the key issues and phenomena which they were designed to explain. And, you know, lo and behold, there are plenty of people from various marginal positions who already do that. So it's re- that it's really kind of that simple. I also wanted to make sure that it wasn't all men, but I also wanted to make sure it wasn't all just individuals or thinkers, which is why I had at least one of the chapters doing not an individual or an academic or an author in a kind of guardian sense, but a movement, a nuclear-free and independent movement. And, you know, that movement is really instructive in a number of ways. It's instructive in terms of just how much a colonial set of logics might make us miss some of the most fundamental developments of the the 20th century. So for example, if you're an alien and you're zooming around Earth in orbit and you're thinking, hmm, where am I going to land? And all you know is the topography of the world. You wouldn't land in New York. You wouldn't land in Paris. You'd land probably in somewhere like the Cook Islands. In other words, in the middle of the most distinct topological feature of the globe, which is the Pacific Ocean, which covers the most, you know, it's the biggest feature of the Earth. And it covers, it, you know, it's, it doesn't cover most of the Earth, but it's the biggest feature which covers most of the if You get what I'm saying, right? So you go there. Now, what happened with the Pacific? Well, you know, from the 1850s onwards, but especially from World War Two, the Pacific gets rearranged in a cartographic fashion to basically speak of simply a rim, the Pacific Rim. You know, they did sto- films about that, right? But <laughs> but the Pacific Rim, and, and this is people like my old colleague, Teresia Tiahiwa, she does a lot about this famous Pacific theorist, Epile Hawthorne he does this too, right? But why is it that you've evacuated the biggest distinctive feature of the of the world which is an aquitaneous world anyway why have you evacuated that and replaced it with the idea of a rim? well you know there's a whole set of different things about that and it's mainly all linked to cold war and the development of a u.s military which had a global power projection and that was the building of the navy in the pacific right so you don't consider the pacific anymore in our author's terms as a sea of islands thousands of islands, thousands of languages, thousands of very long-held interconnections, a lattice across the most distinctive feature of the world. You empty it out and all you do is you put big aircraft carriers sliding smoothly across the surface, all right? Of course, international relations is always concerned with catastrophe, right? During the Cold War, it was nuclear. Where were uh, and, and people obviously talk about nuclear war or nuclear bombs, and there's Nagasaki and um, Hiroshima, right? But people rarely talk about nuclear testing, which is guess what, blowing up of bombs. Oh no, but Robbie, that's in you know areas which are entirely devoid of any population, blah blah blah, right? So when you look at where the big nuclear powers decided to test. Their bombs. It was in areas which they considered to be thinly populated or populated by primitive peoples who could be shipped out. And of course, you know, one of the main areas where that happened was the Pacific, in the Marshall Islands and the Bikini Atoll and and French Polynesia and all, all, all those places. Right. So you've got the stakes of the of the future of humanity actually being contested by a set of indigenous movements. Dispersed and interconnected across the largest topological feature of the world, wherein the stakes of humanity are seen as are seen in this light. The environmental catastrophe of nuclear testing is brought about by military imperialism, which is enabled by settler colonialism. Therefore, if we're going to actually save the world for humanity, we have to have we have to get rid of uh, settler colonialism. And I am use that term just generically, right? I know there's problems with it. So hence, it wasn't just like CND, nuclear free. It was nuclear free and independent Pacific. Now, I don't know anyone in international relations who teaches. I mean, there's probably a few who teaches that history. You would probably think it would be an important history to teach, right? So, uh, yeah, instructive, right? So, you know, this is also part of this reimagining. It's basically to say de-provincialize step into the wider deeper world so you can really plumb the depths of the of the challenges which you think humanity face because if you're not stepping into that wider and deeper world you're just not doing good inquiry Mm. it's just insufficient
0: yeah that's it it, it's i mean it's an excellent example and you're right i've not not heard people teach with it and, and certainly it gives an a, an example of how how you might with your own with yeah. you know with, with different examples
1: i mean the one person i know who had who did was merce tate who was very famous um african-american political scientist i think she was the first african-american woman to get a phd at harvard or something like that you would have to mm-hmm. check man don't mm-hmm. take my word She's uh, i can't remember it from the top of my head now but she's got a distinctive claim in in mm-hmm. that kind of way mm-hmm. but merce tate, tate some of her first work was on you know, it was on the Pacific and it was on comparative slaveries as well. Mm. Right. So Merce Tate did it. Very few other people. Have, have, And that was she did it whilst these movements were kind of starting to, you know, form. Right. But yeah.
0: I mean, the next thing is, you know, really moving away from the vast Pacific as the biggest topological feature on the earth and thinking actually about the urban which for me is a minor key kind of but very important point that I've got from both of your recent books, from this one and from Race and the Undeserving Poor. I'm really interested in in the place of the urban and urbanization in racial and racist thought. And so while, you know, your main intervention in this book is with, I think, helping us think about how colonial concerns about global order, structure, political thought, different time periods and different subfields of political science, but your discussion of urbanization has important implications for all disciplines, for all of us involved in anti-racist politics as well, I think. In the chapter on political behavior, which is the second kind of substantive chapter after the after political theory, you write about how in the late 19th century in the UK and the US, the study of political behavior sought to mitigate the disorderly effects on the demos caused by population moving and the mixing of heredities. And you can see why it's important to me as someone concerned about Politics of migration. And there were concerns explicitly, which we write about in both books, about the degeneration of the Anglo Saxon race and the racial stock due to industrial urbanization in different ways. And then also, you speak about Malinowski, and, and I guess there the concern is with the urbanization of the quote unquote natives, the movement from people in colonial settings from country to city, and then their involvement in anti colonial movements. So, broad question is, you know, in in your research for this book and the last one you know what have you discovered about racial thought and the urban
1: mm. well that's a really good question Luke. I mean I probably discovered something which people have known for quite some time right? which is that well and it's particular urbans actually but it's that the big disquiet and existential angst which comes with racism is about the not just the polluting of your stock but it's also the degeneration of that stock at the same time so there is always these two things from within and from outside right from within it's all to do with this idea that that the industrial is dysgenic not just in terms of its environment but in terms of how it breaks down orderly bonds of patriarchal independence i.e families right so it's not just hygiene like that it's not just hygiene it's also the idea of what allows these units to stand on their own in an orderly fashion right and so the urbanists seem to break down all these bonds you know these bonds which were created in these nice provincial little you know towns or villages and at the same time the cities are where the migrants come and the migrants come And they pollute not just in terms of biological heredity, but that biological heredity is always taken to be practices as well. So, you know, the word pheno for phenotype is about, you know, an outward demonstration of something. And pheno has always meant not just what people look like, but how people behave. Right. So never think that pheno means simply biology. It's never been that. Eugenics was never about that. No racism was ever about just what people look like. It was always about this interconnected argument that what they display is also what they behave. Right. So, you know, in the US, the Mexicans were bringing apparently dodgy labor practices. The East Europeans were doing that as well. Right. African-Americans were bringing irrationality, all these kind of things. Right. So that to me is the big question which hangs over the urban in a lot of a lot of the, the kind of racist thought, which then always has its counterpart in the pristine, you know, rural, right? So there's no, and the pr- preservation of that apparently pristine, you know, heartland, yeah? So it's no surprise to me that, you know, Hartlepool and London have a interconnected racist ecology when it comes to Brexit and post-Brexit, you know, the hinterland and then the dysgenic urban. Uh, no surprise to me that, I, you know, that if there is such a thing as a civil war, which has been going on in the US, it's been in Portland and it's been in the West Coast where, you know, there's this whole thing about the frontier. Right. So so that's what I've learned about it. But that also means that we we have to remember that we can't just focus on the urban as, as if these are the big triggers and pivots of, of, of global history. That would tell me that in actual fact there are interconnected geographies going on here. So, yeah, that's what I've kind of learned. No, I think, it's,
0: <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I, think, I think it comes through in an important way. And I suppose for people like me who work on policing and immigration control, mm. um, the city's sort of the backdrop for a lot mm. of these sites of racist encounter, you know, and just generally, I guess, in literature on racism as I've come through has been, you know, mm. kind of the city's been the unspoken backdrop. But I think what this kind of helps us do is is think about these concerns that you get you know so coded references to london to places in london to knife crime for example that don't name race explicitly necessarily but which rely on a whole a whole long history of thought about the contaminated city and the urban and yeah i mean i think it's just seeing that actually come through when it's not the main topic necessarily has been illuminating for me and i, I guess uh mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We're, we're both speaking. And it is that
1: double, it's that double thing. It, it mm. You know, when people think about racism, it's not, or, you know, Enoch power, whatever, it's not simply the intervention from outside. It's the associated and co-constitutive degeneration from inside that they're worried about. Mm. It's both of them things at the same time. It's never simply one.
0: Yeah. And you make that point, right, that the joint concern of the kind of eugenic, thinkers who were writing about political behavior was both about britain Britain's right. expanding imperium particularly contamination in various settler contexts right. as well as this what was happening in the city and all of this movement it just makes me think about race and and the problem of unruly kind of movement people you know moving to different places and perhaps you know engaging in illicit sexual relations with one another and all of this becomes the ground for a kind of sense of panic and yeah. decline and,
1: Right. And and that's why, you know, when it comes to poor people, when you've got the rich people telling you to be worried about these people coming from the outside, you know, you always think twice about that because the other part of that is they're looking at you and your degeneracy. Mm. You ain't friends.
0: Mm. Totally. I mean, it made me think, I suppose, that maybe decolonizing as a useful kind of analytical method as well. Part of what we need to do is decolonize what the both what the city and the country can mean and I think you know the literature which mm. says that cities are sites of you know conviviality or whatever word you use for that you know encounter where people where, where racism can become ordinary or can be overcome and then also you know thinking about cities and their role in both historically the role of, of various people who live in the countryside in, in colonizing in colonialism mm. uh, but also perhaps what the country could mean other than as a kind of mm. site of uh, white pastoral kind of homeliness and actually mm. trying to rupture both of those things which which mm-hmm. perhaps you give us some ways into I think that might be a good place to bring the conversation to a close we've covered a lot of ground I really think people should pick up the book and um yeah read for themselves because there's a lot more to be taken from it and a lot more you know several more important examples that we didn't get a chance to touch on mm.
1: Well, you know, I mean, Luke, I, I, it's always good talking to you, man. And I hope your work is going well, because
0: your work is really, really important.
1: And big ups to, you know, the Sarah Parker Raymond Centre. and.
0: hope to have more engagements. I know, I, of course, without the pandemic, you would have been, we were saying before, you would have been back in London and we would have, you know, but hopefully mm-hmm. before too long, we can we can have you in person, not in virtual, awesome. and, and have some further conversations. Awesome, man. That's good. Thanks. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women's Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialisation or follow us on Twitter at ucl underscore SPRC.